Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. And we are recording. Okay. So this is the One Football Podcast focusing on women's football. So this is women's football across Europe and some of the hot topics in the sport itself. Now, obviously, I am not Ian. I think our voices sound a little bit different. Um, Today, your host is myself, Angelina Kelly, and I am joined by Lewis Ambrose. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. No worries. And Ollie Dressler. Welcome, Ollie. Hello. Thank you very much. So let's crack on and take a look at some of the games that took place over the weekend. First up, we have got Chelsea against Manchester United, one of the biggest games in the Women's Super League calendar. Um, Not the best result for myself as a Manchester United (laughs) fan. Uh, Chelsea got a very important 2-1 win over Casey Stoney's side. Um, Obviously, the weekend prior, Chelsea were the only team playing as they got the 5-0 win over Reading. That was down to a few dramas from Dubai and some COVID issues. Um, Now, I might be grasping at straws here, Lewis, but do you think that the fact that United didn't play the weekend prior like Chelsea. Do you think that hindered them a little bit as the first half they were not at their best or do you think this is just a trait they have as we've seen quite a few games where they haven't really seemed their best at the beginning but they come out much stronger in the second half? Yeah, I'm I'm going to let you down and I'm sorry but I think it, I think it is more the more the latter. I think we've seen it like you say in the big games against Arsenal against Man City where United have Maybe at, at times, I think especially the City game, been lucky to still be in the match and have then come out and played really, really well in the second half and managed to get themselves back into it. And it was just the same pattern that we've seen again um, against Chelsea at the weekend. So I think Sam Kerr had gone through a few times. Obviously, Penilla Harder eventually scored the opening goal and it just felt so, so obvious that Chelsea were going to go into the lead and really could have again like like those Arsenal and City matches put the game out of sight before half time and United maybe just didn't quite have it in them to to rally quite as strongly I think Chelsea handled United after the break after when they'd improved a bit a lot better than Arsenal and Man City both did when United stepped their game up I think this was just the, the champions playing like the champions really Oh, thanks for crushing my dreams. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you're right. They, they were brilliant. I mean, again, me grasping at straws. United were without Tobin Heath, who has been vital for them recently, and they did lose Kristen Press in the second half. Now, this has been called a... She had to be subbed off because of a post-viral non-COVID fatigue. A <laughs> bit complicated, but I think they're just trying to say it wasn't COVID. Um, and in came Lauren James. I mean, she did score a wonderful goal, Lewis. She, she is exciting. She's an exciting prospect for United. Very, and for England as well. Mm. I think she's only 19 still, and we've seen this, we've seen this last season from Lauren James, the ability to beat players, the ability to score Good goals, not just this one was with her right foot, but with her left foot as well last season. She's just a really, really good player. She looks completely unfazed by the level she's playing at at 19, which I think you can't take for granted. She's just so smooth on the ball. She, yeah, Like I say, she strikes it well with both feet and we'll see what happens after the summer with 
Tobin Heath and Kristen Press and if they remain at United or not. But either way, to have Lauren James there and only improving is massive for them. Yeah, definitely. Um, however, of course, anything that Lauren James could do, Chelsea and Fran Kirby could do better. Um, she had an excellent game. She scored another goal after the four goals that she scored against Reading. Um, Sam Kerr was sadly not on form with her shooting. Otherwise, it could have been definitely a lot worse for my side. Um, Ollie, just how important do you think Kirby and Kerr are in this Chelsea team? Yeah, about Kirby, I think she was really crucial. I mean, this is probably the best start you can have to a year scoring four and then the winner the next week against United. And it's just great to have her back, I think, um, after last season with uh, being out for such a long time and also some ankle injury problems uh, in this season. It's just great to see her being back in her goal-scoring form. And yeah, it's she's very crucial for the team, I would say. Um, about Sam Kerr, it's kind of funny because whenever I watch Chelsea, like on the live match, she never scores. <laughs> and she always seems a bit, how to say that, uh, wasteful maybe mm. to me. And whenever I just watch the highlight, she's like begging hat tricks, like it's nothing. So it's always a bit funny to me watching her. I think she had that big chance was uh, against United as well, where she was clear on goal and yeah, kind of w- missed it in a weird way with the outside of her boot. Mm. And I was like, ah, that's not the clinical finish I would maybe expect from someone of her quality. But I checked and she has like still the third or fourth best goal ratio in the in the league. And what I really like about her playing is uh, she's really good in combining with all the attacking midfielders. And this is really enjoyable and I think also very important for Chelsea as a team. Um, Yeah, but I think at the moment Kirby is even a little bit a step ahead, I would say. I even checked the expected goals for both of them to, you know, prove my point here. (laughs) And I think Kirby beats her expected goals at the moment by, I don't know, I think she has 0.48 or something and she's at one point. Zero four, and in the meantime, care is beat by that expected goal. So maybe I have a point here that she seems a bit of uh, too wasteful in front of the goal, but nevertheless, like top class player, very important for the team as well. And I think they're both twenty seven, like same age as me, and they're going to be in the peak in the next few years, like opposite to me, obviously. <laughs> and uh, I think the best is yet to come from both of them to be honest. And yeah, it's just really good that Kirby is back on her goal-scoring ways, as I said. It's really enjoyable. Definitely. And I think what we can take from this is that basically you are a bad omen for Sam Kerr. Yeah, I should just watch, <laughs> stop watch Chelsea game and she will... Let her have good. a good game and maybe yeah. just don't watch the next one. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and of course, Penila Harder was on the score sheet, a brilliant player. I know, Ollie, you are a fan of hers. Um, mm-hmm. She's been to two Champions League finals with Wolfsburg. This was her third goal for Chelsea. Do you think she's settling into life in London? Yeah, first of all, I want to say that I still am very, very sad that she left the Bundesliga. As you said, one of my favorite players, always a pleasure to watch, especially live in the stadium. At few times, the opportunity to travel to Wolfsburg and watch her. And yeah, I think from outside the pitch, settling in a new city when there's a pandemic and lockdown and everything going on is maybe a bit difficult. But I think it definitely helps having a girlfriend there. 
and also playing with her in the same team. And on the pitch, I felt like she needed a, a few weeks uh, to adjust to the new environment and you know get to know the, all the players around her and everything. But yeah, now the crucial goal against United and I feel like she's really you know growing influence on the whole Chelsea game and uh, yeah pulling the strings and attack and you know combining with all the other amazing players I mean what an attack does Chelsea have there it's just it's bonkers and yeah I think she will grow even more into that role of becoming like the the, the playmaker of the team and yeah as you said she lost two Champions League finals and I think both Chelsea and Harder as well are very keen to maybe reach a final together and then, you know, this time not lose it against Lyon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, that they, because they're doing quite well in the uh, Champions League so far, because didn't they um, get, didn't they knock out Benfica with yeah, a like lot of goals? Eight, eight, nothing on the aggregate, I think. So, yeah, it looks very comfortable for them at the moment, yeah. I would say. I mean, things are looking good for Chelsea. According to my stats, the Blues have not lost in the Women's Super League since the 27th of January 2019 and have now equaled Manchester City's record top flight run set between May 2015 and May 2017. And they, of course, have a game in hand. Lewis, just how good is this Chelsea team? I mean, we're talking about them, <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking about them up there with Lyon and wanting to compete at that level and win the Champions League. So they're that good. There are teams that sort of are aiming for winning the Champions League. I think Oli mentioned the, the just the incredible talent that they have, especially going forward. I mean, at the back as well with like Magdalena Eriksson is brilliant. But I think especially going forward, you have to look at that sort of you can't think of any other club that has so many players of that level Sam Kerr Penilla Harder Frank Kirby obviously but uh, Jisoo Young as well like it's just crazy Uh, Bethany England I don't know how Emma Hayes is going to try and play all of them regularly and I think that's probably why we've seen maybe a bit of a slow start from Harder as well because she's come from Wolfsburg where they're a huge and successful women's club, but she was sort of the star of that team the last couple of seasons. And now she has to find her place a little bit, I guess, in the Chelsea team rather than things being built for her to succeed. But I think when you've got that firepower and any of those players and injuries won't harm them, then you have to consider them as like the one of the big favourites to or one of the clubs that could possibly upset Lyon and finally take the Champions League away from them. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, thinking about who has been in the mix with the Champions League out of, because um, obviously United are not competing men or women at the moment. <laughs> um, I think out of all the teams, I think it would be really, really special to see a team like Chelsea, like you say, with all that talent, actually manage to uh, to bring that trophy home. Um, speaking of my club, um, it is United's, it's only their second campaign in the top flight. This is their first defeat in 15 league games. They're still level on points with Chelsea. All things considered, they're not doing too shabby, are they? <laughs> no, not at all, I would say. 
Um, and you shouldn't be too sad about the defeat. I mean, it's Chelsea we're talking here. Of course. And as we said, United still has all the chances. I think even just qualify for Champions League next season would be such a massive success for being like the second second year in, in the league. So um, also, it's very nice to see uh, another team breaking in the top three. I think like the last five seasons or something, it's been just City, Arsenal and Chelsea in whatever order in the top three. And it's kind of nice to see, you know, a different team breaking up that elite club up there. And I think Leah Gordon once said that, uh, yeah, the arrival of Heath and Press that we both already mentioned was such a big change of the mindset of all the players there. And they really grew in confidence and believing in themselves that they could achieve great things. And yeah, you should be very positive about the season still. <laughs> yeah. I will still be positive. Um, of course, Arsenal are only three points behind the, te the two teams. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think that this is going to be a campaign with everyone in the mix? Um, maybe Arsenal and City will catch up. Or do you think this could end up staying neck and neck between United and Chelsea? Oli, if you want to go first. Yeah, okay. I'm I'm really a sucker for last match day decisions. So I would really love to see like four teams competing until the very end. Obviously, with that unbeaten run by Chelsea, like, I don't know, 32, 33 games, it's very difficult to imagine, you know, other teams catching really up there. But I don't know, City got Dog Camper now as a transfer in the winter and really improving the squad as well and United still growing strong Arsenal have just to get there you know together and uh, I think or I hope let's say that there is going to be a tight title race but that's maybe 90% hoping and just 10% realistic thinking yeah I think It will be interesting to see if the Champions League and playing those extra games at some point has a bit of an impact on Chelsea's league form as well because that's the only way I can probably see somebody else keeping up with them. I think City are probably the ones that I would pick if I had to say that somebody's going to go close with them. United, it's just hard to know when it's the, the first season in the in that sort of fight and as you say only the second season in the WSL it's hard to know if they can go the distance Arsenal have looked quite poor recently by their standards and have now gone a really long time without winning one of those big games against City or against um, Chelsea and against United as well at least in the WSL so yeah they they looked poor against City recently after taking the lead they actually played really really well against Chelsea earlier this season a couple of months ago and managed to to not win letting a really late equaliser in that one and I don't know I just think when you have the chance to beat Chelsea and you don't take it then it just sort of looks like everything's sort of falling for for Emma Hayes's team yeah well it's going to be exciting uh For, for me, um, I think that's just the main thing, isn't it? As long as you get an exciting title race and an exciting league with some good football, um, taking my bias away from it, um, that's that's <laughs> what we want to see. Um, moving over to Spain now, and we have got the Levante against Atletico Madrid game. Atletico Madrid were crowned winners of the Women's Supercopa de España as they beat Levante 3-0. Oli, what did you make of the game? Yeah, to be honest, after uh, Atleti beat Barca in the semifinals, I thought like, okay, this is a done deal for the for the final. 
I mean, no disrespect to Levante, and they are even higher in, in the table at the moment than Atletico, but beating that Barcelona team is just really huge at the moment. I think they are the highest, highest scoring team of all top five leagues by, I don't know, 10 or 20 goals margin to PG and Lyon. And it's just crazy how good this team is. And beating them, getting them into penalties, I felt like, okay, this is going to be, you know, the the title for Atletico. And unfortunately, I was right because the game was basically over after like half an hour um, when Atletico was 3-0 up. And I felt like Levante just couldn't really keep, you know, up with the pace that Atletico had up front. And um, yeah, there seemed really not that big of a chance at that day, at least for Levante. But what I really want to mention here, or for me at least, the greatest moment was after after the match when they lifted the trophy and the captain, uh, Amanda San Pedro, lifted the trophy with uh, Virginia Torresilla, who had a brain tumor, I think, last May. And I don't know if you saw it, but I just cried and sobbed like, on my sofa. It was so emotional. And... Yeah, just a beautiful moment and uh, I think a very deserved moment uh, win for Atleti. Yeah, definitely. I think I saw some of the images of it and it is um, moments like that are, are just really special, aren't they? Um, another star of the show for Atletico, I am going to pronounce this lady's name incorrectly because I am not the best pronouncing <laughs> names, but it is Akara Nuchao. I'm going with. I could be wrong. Again, apologies if I am wrong. Um, a bit of background on her. Um, she's a Cameroonian international. She's played in Russia, USA, Sweden. She left her club in Norway for this move to Atletico. This was her first game for the club, the final. Um, she managed to assist the first goal and then she scored two other goals. She has certainly made her mark. Um, Ollie, are you looking forward to seeing if she's just a flash in the pan or she could be the newest talent in the Spanish League? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you announce yourself like this as a new club in a new country, you have to deliver afterwards as yeah. well. So, um, yeah, but seriously, she was, I think, clicking very well with Ludmilla and Castellanos on the right-hand side, where I think of three goals came from and yeah she just looked very sharp like this typical killer instinct in the box i think and she's also quite experienced played olympics and world cups with cameroon and was the top goal scorer last season in norway so also a great age i think to get to the top level of the game she's also like 27 and now proving herself at the highest level and yeah i'm really looking forward to see more of her and atleti in the rest of the season yeah, um, what, one England international um, that plays for Atletico that used to play for Barcelona and Manchester City and Everton is Tony Duggan. She had a really good spell at Barcelona and with Atletico last season, she got six goals in 21 appearances, not her normal numbers. So far, she's got two goals in 15 appearances. Um, Lewis, do you think that this trophy will give her a boost, especially with a new England manager or managers to impress, which we'll talk about later, um, the Euros, the World Cup and the likes of players that we've mentioned before, Fran Kirby, Lauren James, Nikita Paris over in Lyon. There's going to be some tough competition with the England forward. So do you think this is the boost that she will need? I think so. I think it's like it looks really hard or it is really hard to envisage Tony Duggan becoming an England regular or an England star again and obviously 
especially some of those players you mentioned. I think all of them are younger than her, but especially Lauren James. And then you have Beth Mead or Chloe Kelly and Alessia Russo, and they're all much, much younger and, and only going to improve over the next couple of years. So I think Tony Duggan is probably still going to be an important member of the England camp and in England squads and around England squads because of her experience. And I think it's so valuable, especially in the women's game where there's not so much coverage when you're going to a tournament and things like that. And Tony Duggan has played in Spain for a number of years now and will know so many of the Spanish players so well. If, for example, England were, were to draw Spain and play against them at some point, I think that the value of that can't be underestimated but it's a few I think 2018 now since she last scored for England and as you say she's not finding the back of the net regularly for Atletico and with all of that competition in the England camp it is sort of hard to picture a a scenario where she becomes a sort of an England star again like she was a few years ago yeah Um, speaking of confidence confidence boosts um is this what Atletico have also been waiting for, not just Tony Duggan? I mean, last season, Atletico finished uh, nine points behind winners Barcelona, obviously because of the pandemic things, you know, didn't run as smoothly as normal. Um, this season, they're in fifth. Um, Barcelona is sitting pretty on top unbeaten. New local rivals, Real Madrid, are in second place. But with Atletico, as Ali mentioned, beating Barcelona in the semi-finals of the cup competition, um, they then went on to win the trophy. Oli... Could this be a turning point for them? I don't know about turning point, but definitely a boost for sure. Because winning the Super Copa for the first time in the club history is is big. Um, I just don't see them like catching up with Barca. I think, as I said, Barca just flying at the moment, highest scoring team, and I think they are also or they also have free games on hand. So I don't think they can catch Barca, but. They are also just three points behind Real, and I think now they got a maybe momentum change or yeah that boost to at least you know make their supporters proud and catch up with their local rivals and of course qualify for Champions League again for next season, which is I guess very important for this Atleti team. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, speaking of Real Madrid. Um, the side that were called Tacon were in the last season. They've since been taken over by Real Madrid. Um, Lewis, how do you think they're doing on their debut season as part of the Real Madrid family? It's really impressive, I think. It's a, probably a similar situation to United, who we mentioned a little while ago. And the fact that they're in their second WSL season now. Madrid, this is their first in the top league in Spain, Primera, Ibordola, and... I think they lost that. I think it was the opening game of the season. They lost 4 0 to Barcelona, and you sort of started to worry, but they've clicked and they've found some form really quickly. And obviously, it helps having back in from Real Madrid behind them, but they're doing really, really well. They're in the fight for those Champions League places. They've, I think, won seven or eight of their last eight or nine games, and the only one that they didn't win was really close derby with Atletico that lost 1-0 so to be there in their first season and I don't think they could expect any more than to be battling for a Champions League place and being around that fight at the top of the league yeah I guess as well being part of the um, Real Madrid family like being part of the Barcelona family and and other big clubs I guess they're kind of 
being brought into this competition with all of the history around football in general and maybe they are kind of sat down and told listen you're part of a certain brand now so (laughs) do not be disappointing us um and obviously we mentioned before um Atletico's um opposition Levante they are sitting in third place in the league many may have expected them to get the win over Atletico. Oli touched on it a little bit, but Lewis, what do you think went wrong for them? They play, again, I may get this wrong, Sporting Huelva next weekend. Um, is that the perfect chance for them to maybe redeem themselves, do you think? Yeah, I think this is just one of those things that you just sort of have to try and quickly move on from and not, not dwell on it, and then they'll be hoping to do that next week. They're, again, Levante, like you you had already mentioned, they're above, um, above Atletico in the league, so... They're, again, another team that's fighting for a Champions League place. I don't think any of those three sides will have what it takes to catch Barcelona, who will probably win the league again. But being in the Champions League is absolutely huge. And Levante have been impressive like the last couple of seasons. They've built season on season. They're getting This isn't a flash in the pan. They were just behind Atletico last season when the league stopped. I think this is, and they're a great example, I think, to other clubs in women's football that you don't have to be on the men's side, this enormous club with enormous funding just to be able to compete in the women's game and to to lift it up to another level. So I think Levante for themselves are, are doing a really, really great job and an impressive job, but I think they can be an example to a load of other clubs as well where it just goes to show that the funding doesn't have to be enormous and it can make a huge difference in the women's game. Definitely. I think that is a really good point, um, to be honest, especially looking at, like you say, teams in Spain, all over Europe that maybe don't have, are not part of these big, you know, families like Real Madrid and Barcelona, etc. Definitely. Um, switching gears now over to Italy and league leaders Juventus celebrated a big victory against Inter Milan. Sadly, the men's team could not do the same as the women's team celebrated being three points clear at the top. Oli, how important was this win for Juve, especially with them being out of the Champions League after that um, very bad loss against Lyon? <laughs> very important, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah, as you said, the the whole thing against Lyon was probably very frustrating for the whole squad, leading two times against the against the uh, holders and then losing two minutes before the final whistle. It's very harsh. Also, the the second leg was only one one nothing until I don't know the 88th minute. So maybe they felt like they had a better chance there to maybe even progress or you know get better results. Um, but I think by now this result is out of their heads. They won the Super Copa versus Fiorentina last night uh, last week. Sorry. <laughs> And yeah, and uh, this this win against Inter, I think it's brought them really back to the Juventus way. I, I really like their dominant way of playing, and they always seem to me like having this maybe classic Juventus touch of being able to score late goals. I think two third of the goals came in the in the second half, and also nine in the last ten minutes. So this team really seems quite confident to me and trusting in their own abilities and that they can always pull things around. So I'm really excited to see them in Champions League again next season, hopefully, and doing even better than this year. 
Yes, definitely hoping to. It is a shame that we won't see them. So I guess we've just got to hope they don't slip up again um, next season. Um, one player who seems unstoppable for Juventus is Christina Girelli, who scored a penalty in the second half of the game. She scored in all of their away matches this season with six goals from six matches. Four of them were penalties. Lewis, just how vital is she in this team? Yeah, enormous. I guess some players just have like an aura around them, right? And I think when you go on the pitch and you feel like you're guaranteed at least one goal because you have a player who seems to score in every single match, it's enormous. And it's really huge boost over the opposition as well. I think anyone who's facing Juventus knows that you don't just have to contend with an entire team of good players, but that there's one player in particular who can just decide the game on their own. I think she scored a goal a game last season as well when they won the league. I think it was not far off doing the same the season before. It's like, yeah, it's just huge. She's so, so good in the air. She can, you know, a kind of complete striker can score all types of different goals. And you'd think that if anyone's going to have a chance against Juventus, they don't just have to beat Juventus, but they have to stop her first. Yeah, certainly. Um, Another player who had a few chances for Juventus is Lena Hurtig. She scored, at first I wasn't sure how many times she'd scored, but Ollie helped Mm -hmm. me out. She has scored three times. Um, Now, she's only been at the club since August. Ollie, what do you make of her so far? Yeah, I would would say a good signing. Um, One goal came in Champions League against Lyon on the highest level, and I think it's her first spell abroad, so... (laughs) Obviously, the same applies, as I said earlier today, uh, about harder. You need some time. Most of most of players need some time to adjust to a new country, to a new team. And she's, at the moment, most of the time, she's just subbed on. And for that, I think her numbers are quite all right. She's never been into double figures, I think, from her goal-scoring record in the leagues. So having you now, I don't know, seven seven games and score two, two assists in the league, this is quite all right for a substitute, like a regular substitute to me. And I think having another Swede in the Juventus squad with Lin- uh, Linda Sembrand really helps to uh, you know settle down in Italy. And yeah, feeling maybe not that lost when you go to a new country. And yeah, I think overall it's uh, it's a good signing, and we can look forward to to the future of her at Juventus. Now, Juventus are similar to the men's team, and I guess it is this kind of being part of a, a big brand. Um, but you know, Juventus have dominated in the league in recent years. Um, for the men, however, we are seeing a lot more competition. Uh, Luis, do you see any teams that could maybe challenge Juventus in the women's league? Milan are only three points behind. Do you think they'll be able to keep up? I think so, and it's it's another one like we talked about Man United we talked about Real Madrid Milan are another they were formed in 2018 but it looks like they've taken their women's side and the women's side of the club really really seriously the whole ownership of Milan has changed over the last few years as in the entire club and they are quite driven to not just have the men's team competing again which we're seeing in Serie A but also the women's team to be one of the top teams not just in Italy but in Europe Um, we mentioned uh, Girelli but I think Valentina Giacinti is just as good 
as long as she's fit and in form, then I think Milan have got a chance of beating anyone. And it will only get better in Italy too. I think the league is committed to turning fully professional in 2022, certainly next year now. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll see more and more teams that maybe maybe not compete with Juventus, but maybe more of a situation like the WSL where we have three or four really top teams and teams that are also then more capable of attracting more and more top players as well. Yeah. Um, now, whilst, as you've mentioned, AC Milan could be challenging Inter Milan, um, we're certainly not up to any challenge in the loss. Uh, since the promotion, they've been very middle of the table. Ollie, what do you think needs to change for them? Uh, I think definitely the new logo will change uh, a lot and solve all the problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, have you seen this? It's terrible. Um, no, but but seriously, um, let's say off the pitch, I sometimes get the impression of Inter that's that the that the club is not as committed as maybe uh, Lewis said for Milan to the women's team. I tried to find them on the website and I couldn't find them, mm-hmm. but I found the esports team. So I don't know. Maybe it was just you know coincidence or, or I don't know. But at that moment, I felt like, are you having your priorities straight there? And how much do you really want that? And I think what the squad itself needs is just time because you can't expect, um, as you said, second second uh, season in the league. And you can't expect every team to go like United being fourth in the first year and now competing for the title just because you have a big name and uh, a big club behind there and maybe bosses expecting your team to play for the title. So that's not how it works. I feel like the team is quite Italian at the moment which means just a lot of Italian players so um, maybe there's a lack of international experience there and of course they never played uh, in the Champions League so they may be sort of the greenhorn at the moment and um, yeah just learning the lessons and I feel like they're defensively struggling a bit because they conceded 20 goals and if you compare that to Milan and Juventus they have six and four and I mean that's basic football knowledge if you really want to compete for silverware you have to have your defense rock solid and that's the base to start from and I feel like this is the thing where Inter has to improve at first and then also get more creative in the in the last third of the pitch and score more goals because by now they have like minus eight in goal difference and yeah, that that lets you sit in the middle of the table. And they also have problems beating teams that are ranked higher than them. I think their only wins in the league so far came against lower ranked teams. So yeah, they're really struggling to get uh, into these big games. And yeah, I think that's a lot of this is uh, due to lack of experience by by the whole squad and every or many single players. And yeah. Lewis also mentioned the owners of Milan I think so Inter is also in the or there's a change of ownership at the horizon so there is also a question how will things then go for the women's team how is the commitment with the new owners will it improve or will it stay like this and uh, I still can't find the women's team on the website so yeah it's it's going to be um, yeah, interesting to see how things going to evolve there with the new owners as well 
Mm, I think that's always not the best sign when you look on their uh, their <laughs> website or their YouTube no. channel or social media and things and there's a bit of a gap. Um, yeah. it, it says a lot, doesn't it? Um, I mean, we've, we've covered a few games there. We'll turn our attention now to the biggest piece of news in women's football at the moment. And this is about Mr. Phil Neville. He has left his position as England's national team coach with immediate effect. Um, I spoke to Ian about this last week, but I want to get your thoughts on this one. Obviously, we will talk about interim managers and managers from September, etc. But regarding Phil Neville, I mean, I think me and Ian were both saying, can't believe he got that job with David Beckham's team. No clue how he could have got that one. (laughs) Was not expecting that at all. Um, But regarding him um, leaving the England national team, are we surprised, Lewis? Is this the right time for him to go? Um, I don't. I don't know what's right for Phil Neville, uh, but I also don't really care what's right for Phil Neville. I think, it, <laughs> I think it's. The, I think it's the right time for the England team to not yeah. have Phil Neville as the manager anymore, um, and I think that's the more important thing. I think the job it always felt you know you see interviews and read press conferences and sometimes he'd say the right thing but quite often you were left with the with the taste that he felt like he was doing women's football a favor by being England manager and they were lucky to have him almost with the, you know with all his experience <laughs> none of it none of it in women's football no um I think it's I think it's good news for everybody really. I think Phil Neville I think it it's a relationship that everybody benefited from. I think for women's football in England it rose the profile of the game. I don't know or you you know it's impossible to say but I don't know if there would have been quite so much interest during the last World Cup if Phil Neville wasn't the manager. I think the WSL was obviously grown massively since he took over I don't think that's a he's a direct cause of that but it definitely has sort of maybe opened the game up to to people who wouldn't have been or weren't paying much attention to it before but don't like don't let him or what he said at times confuse you and think that I think that women's football was so lucky to have him I think it was a great job for Phil Neville to have as well to have no real experience and just walk into managing a national team that's in the top four or five teams in the world is an absolute blessing for his career. And yeah, obviously they weren't going to move on beyond this summer anyway. So I don't think it's really a problem for anyone, particularly that he gets to to go off to his new nice job in Miami a bit earlier now. Yeah, um, I mean, I probably agree with everything that you've said there. Um, He certainly wasn't doing them a favour, but I guess it kind of mutually had positives for for both sides. Um, But also maybe some negatives. I mean, he did win the She Believes Cup with the team, didn't manage to win it again. It all went a bit downhill. Um, Alex Scott has come out and said that she believes he failed to adapt his philosophy. Do you agree with this, Ollie? Why? I mean, Lewis has kind of touched on it, but why do you think it it didn't work out? Yeah, I think Lewis made some very good points there. It was his first re-coaching group, if I'm not wrong about that. And as you said, at the beginning, it looked good on paper, but I read so many times or heard so many times from players or journalists that are covering the English national team that it's kind of a boring approach, what he did there. And 
with all tactics and style of play. And I think the word is stale in English. Yeah. That I hear <laughs> yes, a, lo a lot of times. And I think what really made a lot of damage, I guess, between him and the team was um, when they went out of the World Cup like yeah. two years ago. Um, there was so much criticism of his decisions to, you know, change a winning formation. Don't use the system, the, the formation, the 4-3-3 that the team is used to and feels comfortable with and playing key players like Nikita Paris out of position. And uh, I, I don't know, for me, it, it would be more than understandable if players lo lost their trust in, in their coach at that moment. Because it's kind of mutual trust okay you trust us and we trust you and together we will you know win this thing and then you just your coach make this kinds of weird decisions and yeah takes away a lot of your strengths and i think that this was a point where a lot of damage was done and after that i think they lost seven out of 11 matches and yeah i don't know overall this whole final thing to me at least from germany from a distance it just seems very weird and strange overall i think <laughs> very weird and strange i like that um yeah i i can kind of agree with that one um i am also kind of happy that he's had his little moment he's departed off to <laughs> miami and we can all just get back on board with focusing i think had he have been in charge for the euros if the euros hadn't have been um postponed I think I would have been a little bit concerned, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> this also means that he will not be at the helm for the Olympics um, and the New England manager, who we will discuss in a moment, isn't available until September as she is coaching the Netherlands team in the Olympics. Um, so in the meantime, at the time of recording, there are some rumours that Hager Riesa will be the caretaker manager. Big name in women's football. She herself won gold at the Olympics. Um, she won the Women's Women's World Cup with Norway and the Golden Ball in 1995. Um, whether she will be taking charge of the Olympics, that's not really been explained, but she could be the caretaker for... This all gets a bit confusing because we've got Team GB that I think Neville was supposed to be taking charge of, but this, um, this lady will be the England caretaker manager. So... Lewis, who do you actually think is going to be taking over for Tokyo if Risa is announced as the England caretaker manager, if she is announced as taking the um, Great Britain team to Tokyo? Will she be a good fit? What do you reckon? I think it would make a lot of sense to have her take over in Tokyo. Obviously, a, a lot of the Team GB team is going to be made up of England players and she's going to be working with England players now looking ahead to the Euros she's going to be working with them f for six months now or around six if she does to get the job which yeah like you say she's apparently about to be given the job so it'll be six months until the summer and then another month or so until the Olympics it makes a lot of sense especially the situation with the other countries in Britain is a little bit unclear. Shelley Kerr has left as Scotland manager. Jane Ludlow left this week as yeah. Wales manager. Maybe maybe Jane Ludlow would be happy to take over for the Olympics. I think I saw an interview with her last year and she sort of said that contractually with Wales it would be a bit complicated, but she's also unashamedly patriotically Welsh and I don't know if she 
would therefore be willing to sort of take over a team. <laughs> it would be a starting 11 of, of Welsh players if it was up to her. <laughs> well, like, I don't know if she's going to take over a team and then if it's going to be 80% England players, basically. Yeah. So it's a complicated situation. It's one that's difficult to work out. And I think Risa makes a lot of sense because there's that sort of no affiliation with, with England or with Wales or with Scotland, which I think is such a strange setup for Team GB. It's so fragile, this kind of the fact that they all play separately under FIFA, but then when they go to the Olympics, they're expected to play as, or they have to play as one. So maybe having somebody from the outside and somebody who obviously, as you said, has Olympic experience behind her as well makes the most sense. Yeah. I mean, I I have got my fingers crossed. I think she would be brilliant. Um, But one person who will be taking over after the Olympics is Serena Weigman. Have I said her name correctly again? I'm not great with names, but (laughs) she has really proven herself with the Netherlands. She won the Euros back in 2017, took them to a World Cup final um, in 2019. Oli, is she the right person for the job? What do you think she's going to bring to the table after the Olympics? Yes, I think she is the right person. Like, I can't remember the, the last time I was so excited about a head coach being announced, to be honest. And yeah, I just think her, as you, as you mentioned, her massive experience, expertise, she's like a proven winner. She really did amazing with the Netherlands. And to me, she always seems like a, or having a no bullshit personality. Like, she's really, yeah, doing the things the way she wants them and she knows what she wants and i also reckon she's stronger with tactics than maybe phil neville no offense but (laughs) um yeah i think she brings or she will bring this leadership and uh, winner mentality to to the lionesses and that they need and maybe make this transition from okay we can reach the semi-finals to okay we can reach the finals and maybe even win them and uh, i also think there will be no cultural or language barrier i think weak man white man sorry for name um even lived in the us for some time so i think it's just a really good decision and uh, uh i don't know this is uh i'm not sure about that but maybe it also helps for, for the players to have a to have a woman as a coach that underst- that has played uh, herself and even understands some decisions that you have to make at some stage of your career for example if you want to have children and I don't know maybe it's this simple thinking but I can imagine that this is easier to deal with a coach uh, like a female coach than maybe with Phil Neville again no offense but yeah I can imagine this is uh, is the point as well and. Yeah, she she really proved with the Netherlands that she's capable of um, doing great on home soil and really, you know, get the whole country excited about the team and ride the wave. And I expect a lot from England in, in in the next tournament. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think if she was my manager instead of Phil Neville, I think I would breathe a sigh of relief. Um, I, I kind of understand what you mean there. I think especially with some of the Twitter comments that Mr. Neville made um, many moons ago, uh, which he did apologize for, but still they happened. Um, yeah, I think it would probably, it probably would be a breath of fresh air for somebody Um that from a gender perspective will probably understand you a little bit more but also you know the women's game she has a very very good understanding of that 
she's a proven winner. Um, so yeah, definitely, I, I agree with that. Uh, a question for both of you here, we've kind of touched on it. Um, we've talked about the England players, we have spoken about their new coach now. Do you think that this England team, I don't want to get too excited because I do this with every major tournament with the England team. I get my hopes up and then they're crushed and I cry and I'm devastated. But (laughs) we won't get too excited, but we will discuss it. Do you think that this team has a chance at the Euros or dare I say it, the World Cup? What do you reckon? Get excited. Really? Am I allowed? Uh, Well, I don't know. I don't want to be blamed if it all... Oh Yeah, I will come to blame you, but still, right, you Um, said that. I'm excited. Go on. Yeah, definitely. I think England, we've seen it the last couple of tournaments that she believes. We've seen it at the the last two World Cups, but especially the last one. The talent is there. The talent is definitely there when they play the Euros on home soil with the home support and don't have to beat America, don't have to beat the US to win the tournament. I think England will probably be quite disappointed if they weren't at the very least in the semi-finals of the of the Euros next summer. Yeah, I mean, I I see no reason that that the ambition can't be at the very least the final four or the final of the Euros. Obviously, you never know what can happen and injuries and bad luck and such things. And you know, don't even you can... think about that. Don't think no, about that. No, I know, I know. <laughs> you have, you've got to throw these caveats in. You can't. You know, I don't want this to come back and haunt me when okay. England get knocked out in the group stage. Um, but you know, like things can always go wrong. But England definitely are, are going to be hosting the Euros, possibly even as the favourites. And yeah, I think anything less than sort of the a, a run, a, a real genuine run, at being able to win the tournament would be quite the disappointment. And I think we're seeing more and more money in the WSL and more influx that's bringing a, a greater influx of the top players from other countries to WSL as well. And obviously that means that you've got top foreign players playing in WSL, but more importantly for England, it means that England players are playing with and against some of the best players from anywhere in the world every single day in training. And that will just do so much for their development that these players are just going to get better and better. Yeah, I I really agree with that. I think there's a really good mix of experienced players in the squad, but also like young and talented players who will also, um, you know, have even more international experience probably until until the next tournament until the Euros are played and I think that with the push of the WSL as Lewis mentioned and also Wiegmann as the coach then for the Euros to me honestly that's a, a real winning combination and I'm telling you something I think it's coming home don't don't even go there I mean (laughs) oh my god I I am so excited right now I mean Phil Neville is out the door we have got some exciting players we've got a very exciting manager on her way in September forget about the Olympics we are focusing on the Euros and the World Cup and like you said Ollie it's coming home I'm getting ready it is coming home here you hit it first remember that (laughs) (laughs) thanks guys so that is the end of our first women's football podcast. Big thanks to Lewis and Ollie, to you all for listening. And if you do want to get in touch, the address is podcast at onefootball.com. And don't forget, you can head to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you listen to all your podcasts, really, to have a listen to all of the One Football podcasts.